0: let's start with what's happening and let's first begin if you will with the role of a journalist in times of crisis um two days ago i was at the funeral of Giselle Khoury which was a very somber occasion because everyone there i think is mourning many things at once Mm. it feels like there's a passing of a generation a passing of october 17 too and then you have the remnants of March 14 that embraced both in the church together mourning. Of course, surrounded by a regional war that we're on the brink of all the time. Four days ago, five days ago, uh, a friend of ours, but you knew him better than me, saw Abdullah, killed by an Israeli missile, doing his job. I think that type of fundamental role for journalism is so vital and it's so important and I want to begin there. With your role as a journalist, you're somebody that has survived immense pain and tragedy in this country. We're going to get into that in the book as well. But your perspective on the role of journalism during what's happening.
1: To be honest, Roni, the past 10 days have made me think a lot about being a journalist. Um, I think when Issam was killed and I saw Reuters' reaction to that, when they tweeted in the very first hour, saying, he has been killed, I said to myself, "Why am I a journalist?" I had been watching Western media covering the war on, on Gaza for many days, feeling outraged by the bias, by you know the lack of coverage on the other side. you know we're taught in journalism school and I went to Colombia I went to one of the best journalism schools in the world to be impartial to be unbiased, to be balanced but to speak the truth. So we need to be impartial but we have to be truthful and I'm worried that that's not what's happening today. Um, I kept thinking, you know, I just want to give up. I don't want to be a journalist anymore because journalism and western media and a lot of media organizations were not doing what we're taught to do, Are our mission is, again, to be impartial but, but truthful, and they were not being uh, truthful. So it was very, very hard, and I try through social media to fill in that gap. I mean, I don't have a lot of followers, maybe like 30,000 or something. That's nothing. But to give context, because that was missing a lot from the coverage. I thought 12,000
0: were worth something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you know, you would... The first few days, I understand there was a lot of outrage and shock after the Hamas attack. But you would watch the media, uh, the Western media again, and you would see families, victims, a lot of pain on one side and a bunch of buildings and terrorists on the other side. That was the narrative. And it felt like history started on October 7 when it's 75 years of systemic oppression, Um, you know, Palestinians um, under occupation, and it's a conflict that's decades um, old, it didn't really start on that day. And I didn't see that narrative, I didn't see the history, I didn't see the context. So it was very enraging, and I felt very helpless. Um, And I know there are a lot of brave journalists today who are speaking up, but everyone is paying the price. There are BBC journalists under investigation, um, including two Lebanese, uh, there's a Guardian cartoonist that's, that has been sacked from this job. Uh, there are MSNBC anchors, Arab anchors that were taken off air. So these are very challenging times for um, journalists. Who I'm not saying you, know, you have to take sides, but you have to show what is happening on the other side as well. And again, you have to be truthful. We were told to speak the truth no matter on what side the truth is. Um, And we don't see that today. We feel like the Western media specifically, I'm not saying the rest is is innocent, but I'm focusing on that because this is what I've been monitoring and this is where I've worked most of my career, unfortunately are not doing that. And where was the outrage? Where was the shock the past decades? We haven't seen anything like that. And I know that the violence today is unprecedented on, on both sides, but it's unfair, It's unfair to forget, you know, what has been happening um, throughout. And so I was telling you yesterday, I hosted someone just to talk about Gaza before even Hamas was born. I think history and context is important and it's part of what we do as journalists um, to document and to give context.
0: So I'll plug him. His name is Zachary Foster. He happens to be a friend of ours. Uh, I hope you're able to upload that video at some point. Not yet. It's
1: when I go back to France, because the connection is failing And I think
0: he'll be watching this episode. He's also great at maps. He's actually, I think, an astute researcher. So he has an archive to look at. Let me get into narrative then, a war of narrative. Do you see this as part of the journalist's rule? Maybe, in your sense, offering a counter-narrative to what you think is misinformation. Is that something you absorb as part of your profession?
1: Yeah, this is what we have to do. We have to look for the truth, even if it's not out there, even if it counters all the narratives that are already there. This is our job. Maybe not every journalist, but at least investigative journalists or journalists who've covered this conflict and know the the context. So you have to look for evidence. You have to find the truth and you have to put it out there, even if it upsets everyone. And this is what's happening, is that when some journalists are trying now to do that, they're being sidelined, taken off air. They're being censored. And we've seen that there's, a, there's literally a crackdown on freedom of speech. There's a war of misinformation and a war on freedom of speech that's ongoing with this war in, in Gaza. Even the algorithm on social media. I spoke to someone at Meta yesterday and they acknowledged the shadow banning. They said, we fixed it. It was, it was a bug. We fixed it in the weekend. Let me know if it's still happening to you. Tons of colleagues reporting, you know, their stories not being seen, their posts not getting any exposure because of certain keywords and, you know, the content. This is not acceptable.
0: I heard it is almost hyperbole. If you write Palestine, there's a shadow ban.
1: Or Gaza or Hamas. Yeah.
0: So was it in your conversation, was it at that level of just geography or even naming a group?
1: No naming also. There were keywords apparently Hamas, Gaza, Palestine. If you use Israel, actually you get more exposure. So there are people who tested.
0: No, they didn't acknowledge
1: this. They acknowledged the shadow banning. Like that's someone at Meta who told me, Let me know if it's still happening. We fixed it.
0: Can I have Mark's Um, number? Sorry. Can I have Zuckerberg's number? Who are you? Talking I don't to? have. No,
1: <laughs> it's someone from the Middle East team that I know. Uh-huh.
0: Mark Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No.
1: And you know that EU leaders also submitted um, a request to to X to Elon Musk yeah. to you know control certain content. So that's also coming uh, from from somewhere. But it's dangerous. I think these algorithms we've seen they've uh, done a lot of damage during elections and now during war as well. Um, showing people only what they want to see and not showing them what the other narrative is and what the other side is is saying mm. that's very very dangerous.
0: So let's go as deep as we can without making this this subject for tonight. Could you and I'm not saying I disagree or even agree how would you best sum up the narrative you're trying to deliver mm. in terms of what you see as bias which is I think dominating a lot of at least western coverage. How do you
1: You mean how do I describe the narrative in the west?
0: No, no. How, how would you counter? In other words, what, what are you trying to explain to them? That I'm not-
1: I'm trying, what I'm trying to do only through my social media because I don't cover the Middle East anymore. Mm. Uh, and God knows if I'm keeping my job in France. I I don't know. Um, but I'm trying to, to stick to facts and yeah. historical context. That's what I've been trying to do. To show people that no matter what your position is uh, towards Hamas, and I posted something that went completely viral, saying that, you could not support Hamas and Hezbollah, but still support Palestinians' right to resist and, you know, to self-determination and decry occupation. So I'm just trying to show people that this violence started 75 years ago, and it's the result of, as I said, systemic oppression and colonization. And these are not my words. These are the words of international humanitarian and human rights organizations, other governments, the, the UN. Um... Uh, it, it, there's no, you know, people accuse me of justifying or being apologetic on both sides, by the way, by just giving mere context, context and history. This is not what I'm trying to do. You do what you want with the context that I give you. But it's my job to explain to you where that is coming from. It doesn't mean I'm justifying. But you have to understand, you know... Why initially Hamas was born in 87? In what was there before 87? What's been happening for 75 years in the occupied Palestinian uh, territories? Uh, who is Hamas? I mean, you only hear that they're a terrorist organization. I don't want to go into that debate. I have a personal opinion, of course. But then it's, it's good to know also, for example, what Zachary told me yesterday, is that Israel uh, played a role in, uh, you know, Hamas's creation, because they wanted to get rid of the PLO uh, back then. And that was, you know, great. It was a charity, Islamic organization. Um, They saw in it a way to get rid of of the PLO. Not a lot of people know that. And Zachary is basing uh, his statement on facts and, and evidence and statements made by Israeli officials. So this is the kind of context that you need to know because vilifying one side only without realizing what the other side has been doing again, is painting an incomplete and inaccurate picture.
0: So there's a focus on empirical data, even using social media to that effect.
1: Yeah, that's the only tool I have at the moment.
0: And that post, if I remember it right, it's almost like false equivalence and showing truth on...
1: That are not mutually exclusive. Sorry,
0: yes, exactly. Yeah. Which I think that is the role of a journalist. It
1: resonated a lot with a lot of people. I was shocked how much, but... uh, because people don't want to be labeled anymore. Like they don't want to be called anti-Semitic if they're supporting Palestinians. They don't want to be, you know, accused of supporting terrorism if they're decrying, you know, what's happening now in, in, in Gaza, or if they condemn the killing of Israelis because, you know, um, some people did that. That they're against, you know, Palestinians' right to self-determination, etc. So, a lot of people just, you know, um, identified with it.
0: It's hard for me to segue to Lebanon naturally, but I'm Mm. going to try, without ruffling any feathers, to see how this topic can be expressed the way you're describing in Lebanon. So forget Western coverage, let's talk about Lebanese coverage of this kind of conflict here. It almost feels like there's an emotional burden Mm. whenever you're trying to speak truth. And I think this kind of issue can tear Lebanon apart always. Even on a good day.
1: It always has.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, how is that role here? What is it shaped by in your mind? I think it's harder and harder and harder to find uh, moderation or problem solving in this country. Yeah. And I think it's a losing, it's a lost cause, in my opinion. Can you shed any of your opinion on that?
1: Do you mean the media's stance on, on this?
0: Let's take today, for example, uh, or even the last 24 hours. Yeah, have I haven't been
1: monitoring closely, to be honest. I know that you know there's coverage of, of what's going on in the south, the the, the protests, yeah. what's going on in in Gaza to a certain. Let degree. me let me put it
0: in perspective. Last night, that horrific hospital.
1: Yeah, the attack, massacre. Yeah. Uh,
0: that's in the background. Mm. By midnight, there are protests erupting at embassies, mostly. And then today Lebanese, I think, are familiar with images that spell horror in Lebanon too. Yeah. So I guess it's trying to find a way to still speak truth, knowing that many people are going back to their default positions.
1: But this is the problem. I don't think because the Palestinians were involved in the civil war and our collective memory of the civil war is so distorted because Mm. there's not one narrative. It's not desensitized from bias and political party's agenda, that there are still a lot of grievances that are coming out whenever there's something happening. I was just talking to an old lady here in Jemezi who's in my book. Mm. And she was like, I was seven. And I remember what the Palestinians were doing in Beirut and they caused the war. I was like, Siham. They didn't cause the war. Let's talk. If you read my, my book, you'll understand that it's more complicated
0: You're plugging your book this. in the middle.
1: <laughs> yeah, and she has the book and she's been reading it. So I think our history and the, the historical grievances between the different parties with the Palestinians, etc., are still there and they come out in times like these. And the Lebanese are still divided. But I'll tell you this, I have a feeling this time that a lot of people don't want to be dragged into this again. Um talking to people from different political backgrounds. Um, it seems to be the case, uh, that's for sure. For the Western, uh, for the, sorry, I'm so obsessed with the Western media now. For the local media, unfortunately, I think there's a political agenda everywhere. And I think that comes from the political funding. I've worked for local media and I know how it is. And I think the coverage reflects very much that. Uh, I mean, everyone says we're pro Palestinian cause, etc. But if you dig a bit, it's there are a lot of divisions. So I don't know if I answered your question.
0: No, I share the sentiment though that I, I I don't know if there's data to prove this, but I think there is a popular opinion, majority opinion, of not wanting to be involved directly
1: in the war. Yeah.
0: In this current war. That's yes. the sentiment. I don't That's know. That's how,
1: how I feel as well. Talking to people.
0: Yeah. And talking, and also this is very. Uh, surface-level observation, even driving around Beirut today, where the highway is blocked. Yeah. And I think a lot of these locations are not friendly to Hezbollah, but no one's doing anything to try to cause tensions there. Yeah. I think that is happening too. It's almost like a...
1: Yeah, but it's, what's happening in the South is very dangerous because yeah. um, the tit is that for now, but we don't know when it's going to become more there's a daily, you know, daily shelling from both uh, sides. Yeah. Um, and then, as you know, there's a regional agenda also behind this, in my, in my opinion. And we don't know when there will be orders for this to become more than uh, what it is. Um, it scares me because this is a country that's already, as you know, when you read my book, you see it's completely drained and it's hit... Uh, kind of a bottomless abyss if you want because I don't know where that abyss ends Uh, so people can't afford being in a war and I think we're already losing because businesses shutting down people not going out this tension we're already paying for it Um, but if it goes into a full-fledged war then in 2006 there were Arab countries willing to pay money to rebuild that's not going to be the case I'm afraid this time so I don't know. I hope it stays like this and doesn't become worse.
0: So just one more question before we dive into the book, and I think it's it's a natural segue anyway. With your opinion in mind. This is a subjective opinion. We can even offer more of this during the Q&A. This is my estimate, and I'd like to hear yours. Again, I'm not an expert, and I I think from what you've said so far, you don't claim to be one either when it comes to regional politics. Not at all.
1: Yeah,
0: it's a gut feeling that we are not going to be dragged into the war, mm. despite majority uh, sentiment not wanting to be part of the war. I agree. And that gut feeling comes less from Lebanon today. No. And th- I'll I'll shape it this way. I see an attack on Iran oppose, uh, exposing us to becoming a battlefield on that front. Short of an a direct, short of a direct attack in that direction, it's. I understand Hezbollah's calculations as caution today. I agree, and this is not a compliment to them. It's no, just no, no, a, it's, it's we're, a we're
1: observing and we're describing uh, right. fairly enough. I don't think they can afford it either, domestically or financially. It's not 2006 right. um, anymore, and I think they have different calculations. And I think, but the problems with what's happening in the south is that I don't know when it's gonna. Like, yeah. I agree with you. I have that gut feeling that it's gonna end. There, hopefully, but I think anyone who claims they know what's happening, there's not enough intelligence being shared. I speak to other journalists who are mm. like investigative journalists. Um, we don't know, so anyone who claims they know is just doesn't know anything to, to be honest. <laughs> That's well this said. is, yeah, everything in what caught us by surprise. All of this, I don't think a lot of people saw this coming, despite what's been happening, you know, in the occupied territories, etc. I mean, even the security breach in Israel. That I never mm. thought would would happen. So
0: at such an immense level, it's not a yeah. simple. It's a
1: yeah. It's the, the fact that they're untouchable, kind of like that myth, <sighs> right. is is broken.
0: And yes. I, I sense it's a psychological victory already, in that you can do this to Israel, and I think
1: yeah, for that camp, yeah.
0: Yes, and that to me, you know, it's interesting. Everyone seems to be saying there's no direct Iranian involvement with what Hamas did. But that's very careful language. Yeah, if it's, I,
1: if I find it very awkward that the Americans said that their intelligence doesn't point fingers directly to Iran. It makes right. you wonder a lot because, I mean, but I don't know. Again, as a journalist, I don't speculate. Yeah. So um, there is no evidence to this date, at least shared by anyone. Yeah. So we don't know.
0: And then it opens the door to indirect. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And clearly the regional touring between Biden and the Iranian foreign minister, his name escapes me now yeah it seems it really reminds me of uh problem starters become problem solvers when you create problems in this part of the world, you're usually the power that can end it on their terms true and I think that's what's happening behind the scenes but it's it's speculation at best
1: yeah unfortunately, at the expense of so many right civilians dying, yes. yeah.
0: At the expense of so many civilians dying. I think that should be the start for your next book because that's the, I I think this is exactly what has happened to Palestine and it's everything you write about in the Lebanese as well. Yeah. So, (laughs) in case no one, in case you want a copy, a physical copy, there are plenty for sale on the barrel. I think it's still there in the middle. Yes. So, it's available for purchase. Let's go into this book. Yeah. Now, I felt actually unqualified at the beginning because there's a sentence in it that there this is a book by woman for women. So either <laughs> so you're I'm, more
1: than qualified. I
0: should lose weight. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm more than qualified? Thank you. Did <laughs> you enjoyed that one? Thanks. <laughs> you're a
1: feminist to my knowledge.
0: Thank you. So <laughs> to your knowledge, enough. I appreciate. It. I don't want to overstep by suggesting that maybe I am still unqualified but I will try to fully absorb and and in a way pay tribute to what you've done. This book is really the last two years of your life and writing and Mm. I know that it came out just a few months ago and I remember when you left this country you left in pain and I just know this from your social media that you were reluctantly leaving for a better future for your daughter. Yeah. And you made a decision that I think is the right decision that any mother would give for her daughter to live a semi-functioning life and a semi-functional state. It's not asking for much. Yeah. But you did that. And then yet you're away, you're abroad, and you're still interviewing Lebanese women about this tragedy, which means there's no escape anyway. You're drawn to this story. You're drawn to this country. And I will emphasize that this country is so damn small that when you know too many of these people, it's, it's more heartbreaking. Yeah. I sat alone last night rereading the story with Tracy Najjar. And I, re- I reread that one because I did an interview with her for my podcast. And sitting next to her was Paul Najjar and their newborn baby. Axelia. Yes, Exactly. He had just been born, so he's crying in the background. They're taking turns, feeding him, attending to him, and the way you describe Tracy, the, her eyes—that almost coldness to her—that's exactly what I experienced. But you also hint at it because you know her, or at least you've known her before. The blast.
1: Yes, we went together to AUB.
0: Right. Yeah. You could, you could, you could read her that this is a wall behind a flood of pain. Yeah. And many stories reflect that kind. And we of thing.
1: met many times for this book, so it's not like she she had this expression only once. It was literally every time I spoke to Tracy that uh, she was so composed and had like the poker face, um, always owning her narrative. It's there are a few other women like that in the book, and it's it fascinated me because they were not sharing their vulnerability with me, whereas others did. But, but sorry. <laughs> I knew that they were very vulnerable. You know, sitting with these women um, was an experience in itself and I think it was the hardest part about writing this book. It was not the writing. It was these interviews. Uh, interviews that lasted um, hours. Um, some women I went back to see more than once. Some I got really close to. I still see and I speak to um, almost every day. And sitting there... I felt privileged, but at the same time, I felt very helpless. And I talk about how it, they reminded me of my grandmother. Yeah. Um, growing up, my grandmother always like, cried when we were with her, remembering how her husband was killed in 1958. And the man who killed him never served justice. And I remember as a child sitting with my grandmother, I would feel so helpless and I didn't know what to do just listening to her story. I would comfort her, but... At some point, you're like, I don't know what, what to do. And I felt this way with, with these women. They reminded me of my grandmother. And there was this boundary that we're told to keep as journalists. There was the COVID boundary, by the way. There was right. social distancing. Yeah. But there was also this um, ethical and journalistic boundary that I ended up breaking because I just couldn't sit s- still sit there They cried most of the time, and I talk about it. Interviews could last two or three hours nonstop crying. It was one year after the explosion when I interviewed them. It's when they started kind of acknowledging and processing the trauma. According to psychologists, you only start processing after six months. And some of them were speaking for the first time about what happened on that day. There was a doctor and a first aid respondent. It's a burden for me. It's a big responsibility. And I've been trained to interview uh, trauma survivors. Um, I had that training at the UN because I covered Yazidi women in Iraq. But I, was, I felt like I wasn't prepared. It was just too much. And I was always so afraid to trigger them, to bring back you know, the trauma again. Um, it was very delicate. And there's a chapter at the beginning, Lord, the firefighter, the only women who other than Sahar, who was on the team. Mm. And my interview with Lor ended after like 40 minutes, and I never came back. Lor was not ready to speak. She was so traumatized. It was so clear for me. And she couldn't wait to end the interview. And I just let her go, and she she asked me, are we done? I wasn't done. I was like, yeah, we're done. I thought it was just too much. It would be like abusing if I asked for more.
0: Just a comment on two things. Uh, it's in your introduction, I believe, where you describe your grandmother, the way you remember her, that there's a bitterness as well. Mm. And I found that striking. Is that she's not given the justice she deserves yet. She does everything right. She raises her family to the best of her capabilities. She's a loving person, but, but when you see her alone, there's a pain in her. And yeah. that, that's so familiar to me and many relatives that don't talk yeah. about what happened to them. In her case, it's a direct injury, losing a loved one. But I think many people are not talking about what happened. And this is before the Civil War, 1958, if I'm not yeah. mistaken.
1: It was after the, the Miziara Massacre. Zyara massacre, <clears throat> right.
0: So that's... Like we,
1: six months after that he was shot, but it was a revenge killing for the Miziara right. Massacre.
0: Yeah. He's a pharmacist, your yeah. grandfather. No. Right.
1: Um, I think, yeah, because she couldn't speak, like she spoke to us, but she never found that safe space where she could really speak about it. And I think it's why I wanted to write this book, that there are so many women out there and they're the most powerful storytellers I've ever met, not just in Lebanon, just covering the Middle East. I covered refugees for four years. Women are the most powerful storytellers. It's because they rarely have a, a safe platform to tell their stories.
0: Let me go there, though, the safe platform. And I don't like to talk too much about me on my podcast, but I'll say after my father was killed, it took me four years to open up about it. Yeah. Four years. You're finding a group of individuals that have suffered immensely in this kind of injustice, but they feel comfortable and safe enough to do it with you. So what is the technique? Mm. I know, I mean, maybe training is part of it, but I don't think that's the whole picture. So what are you offering them to feel this level of safety?
1: Listen, um, being a woman and being Lebanese, that helps Mm. a lot. But I also learned that you have to build trust. And for people to trust you, you need to be very patient. And this is really... a mission that challenged me a lot because people who know me know that I'm very impatient. And so it took me a while to, you know, give space to these women to get to know me. I didn't interview them from the first time. I, see. I went there, we had a chat, everything off the record. Um, and I make them feel that I care because I actually really do. It's, I'm not just writing the book because I want to write a book, uh, And also listening to their feedback after the book was written, I know that I did the right thing. I could have, you know, drifted away or did something wrong. Something was very worried not to do justice to their stories. Um, But it's that, it's patience. And for them to to trust you, you really have to show them that you care. You have to prove that. So the
0: writing is secondary almost. Mm. It's the trust that comes before you're even doing the yeah, work. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then you show them that you care beyond. Yeah, after you do the interview, like literally most of them, there are maybe two or three that I can't get in touch anymore with. Uh, they're foreigners. We speak mm. every, every week. You know, it's, um, I feel like I'm part of their circle uh, now. And I help some of them. And by the way, the, pro- the proceeds of, of the book, My Proceeds, uh, go to them. Um, and I wouldn't say it's easy again. It was very hard but it took time and, and and it works. It works. There's maybe one woman that I approached that said no to being interviewed. She was older and she just wasn't ready to open up, you know, uh, the wounds. She's also a survivor of the Civil War. Um, she's alone. Uh, it wasn't, you know, she, she didn't want to. But
0: I've had people come up to me to want to talk about relatives that died from the blast, but not on the podcast, just in person. The uncle of Elias Khouri, a yeah. teenager in Marim Chayet, his uncle just wanted to talk. And I
1: being on camera is a game changer.
0: Absolutely, and and being recorded, I don't think they, but they. Still, I was
1: recording, but it was they knew the recorder. I told them that I was recording, but they just couldn't see, it and it wasn't. Right. I wasn't so keen on the quality. It was just for me because um, the book is, there are chunks of narratives out there that haven't been like edited or so. There's mm. even, I'll give you an example. I, I think um, at the end, there's a woman that names a president with the wrong name. I kept it as is. This is oral history. Mm. You don't change what people say. So I was, I was recording just so that I'm very accurate and I would transcribe as is but they couldn't see the recorder yeah. and then maybe they saw it at the beginning but when, when you're there for an hour or two they just forget it
0: Right.
1: Um, and cam- cam- being on camera if I this was a documentary I'm not sure I, w- I would have gone as deep as, as I did so it helps uh, print and you know not seeing something uh, in front of their face reminding them that they're being uh, recorded that's probably why with you it's harder.
0: It's harder, but I still want to, I still, I'm honored that anyone reaches out to want to talk. So I still yeah. listen. But of course, I think that's the hardest thing to do is especially, I'll give you my side. When it's a permanent injustice, it's harder to talk about it. When there's no closure, you don't want to open up about it easily. You have to pick and choose who you talk to. So you did the right thing by offering that friendship and trust and then very subtly maybe showing them that you're somebody that could write about this story. I also noticed though in the book, it's not just stories. It's not just women talking about their struggle. You're offering your own analysis too and snippets. It's almost like there are certain chapters dedicated to how you see the country that you grew up in and maybe the depth of problems that are so deep today. Are these reflections that come to you after the port blast are you seeing certain things as more precedent now than they were before because you are in a way you're becoming political to a degree yeah yeah i'm not i uh, i mean it's not just recording their stories no. and leaving it there I'm
1: part of the book yeah i give my own analysis i mean even the historical chapter they're my own uh reading of our modern history right and I don't claim anywhere that you know it's uh, objective, and but it's every Lebanese case is like this because we don't have you know any common history that's been written or, or taught. It's our own reading of of events and
0: that type of writing, though, which is breaking from what we talked about earlier, which is just.
1: Typical journalism. Exactly. It's not. It's, it's, it's
0: first-person narrative. Yes,
1: it's a first-person narrative. And it was a conscious choice because I, I wanted to do that.
0: And Are these things you've drawn from post-blast, being able to distance yourself yes. a bit?
1: I mean, I never wanted to write a book. I decided to write this after I left. When I was in Paris, it was seven months after the, the explosion. Um, I think when you take a distance and you have some kind of peace of mind... Uh, you see things differently, and you are able to process and put things down in in writing. It helps a lot when you're here in Meshed and like so ingrained in the context. It's hard.
0: So I had your permission beforehand. Yes, go yeah. ahead. There are two passages I'd like you to share tonight. This is the first one. It's there's ink. I damaged <clears throat> your book intentionally.
1: No, no worries. And i the, give you another
0: one. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Oh, that's the long. ink extends to the back. So okay. it's just two pages where the where sure. the marker is. So these are introduction page 17 and 18, if anyone has the book. With them.
1: Okay. Many of the stories I wrote about focused on the psychological toll of the blast. In Lebanon, new traumas pile on top of previous ones before you've had time to recover People who survived the explosion were also survivors of the 2019 economic crisis, the survivors of the many wars with Israel, survivors of the civil war, the political assassinations, and the endless cycles of Lebanon's violence. I began putting together survivor stories, particularly from women, although that was never a deliberate choice at the outset. Many of these women lost everything that day the most precious people in their lives, their physical and mental health, their homes and livelihoods, their ability to be happy and to feel in any way secure. Mothers who lost their children in the explosion, wives who lost their partners, doctors and nurses, first aid responders, refugees and migrants, each recalled the moment at 6.08 p.m., sharing the story of their loss, and the harrowing details carved into their memories of the day that changed their lives. These women's homes turned into a front line on 4 August. The most secure place in their lives was no longer safe. But the more I listened to them, the more I realized it wasn't just that that they had witnessed an apocalyptic moment. Their losses went way beyond the blast. They tell the story of Lebanon's modern collapse and their life as women in it often characterized by violence, oppression, and discrimination, but also by survival and extraordinary endurance. This book is a collective memoir of my country's recent history narrated by its marginalized women.
0: The theme of loss and then surviving despite that freefall. And you mentioned earlier, an abyss without the floor. The bottom, yeah. Right. This book is not just about the blessed. No. It's, and there's, I think maybe it's appropriate. A lot of it goes back to the free fall that begins post-October 17th, And yesterday was the four-year anniversary. But when things are so bad anyway, anniversaries in this country become, they're either meaningless or forgotten altogether. So nobody really cares that yesterday was October 17th. A lot of the foundational flaws, the way you see them, are written about here in this book. And it's scattered, different chapters. It's a big ask. But today, looking back in the last four years, can you... I think it's even towards the end of the book, you say, this problem is not economic, it's political, yeah. and it's about governance. Yep. Let's go there as much as we can. Yeah. Sum that up in a way that makes sense to you. What exactly does that mean?
1: It means that um, there's an economic crisis, right? But we're not the only ones to have one. There have been plenty in Argentina, um, you know, Brazil. And you are able to stand back on your feet if you have proper governance. And by that, I mean institutional structures. Uh, a functioning government or a change of government where you know an a party uh, is gone and a new party is is in power if it's the right or the left you know we don't we don't have that um in the case of Lebanon, I am specifically hopeless because I think the problem is political, and that takes me back to October seventeenth because we thought that change was happening. At the beginning, I was very skeptical, by the way, because I also covered 2015, um, 2009. I was there, you know, during March 14. So there were turning points in in Lebanon's history, but we thought were going to take us to something better and it never never happened. Um, I know there's micro change happening in, in Lebanon and I don't like to discredit that. It's just the macro picture is very discouraging. And I think that the election results, um, despite the electoral system that's been tailored to the needs of the political establishment, there was a tiny breakthrough, right, with 13 new MPs. But 13 MPs is not enough out of 128. And I'm very disappointed with the way things have, have gone since their um, election. So this is to s- tell you in, in a nutshell that I'm not very optimistic. But then if you want to go to the... I, I, there's a chapter at the beginning that I call a dysfunctional compromise. This is how I describe Lebanon. I think it's a dysfunctional internal and external compromise. And it's always been like this. I go back to 1860, to the Ottoman Empire, um, to the Mutasarrifiya and Qa'im Al-Qa'im Um, And I show how...
0: It's as dysfunctional as it's... Yeah, name.
1: they were as dysfunctional and there was always regional and international interference at the request of various Lebanese stakeholders and parties. And it's, you know, the conversions of these internal and external factors that make us so unstable and volatile all the time. I also talk about the sectarian system uh, and how that's a problem including for, for women and I think there's a gender apartheid because of that system. So the sectarian system, the you know the regional interference always at the request of the Lebanese, I'm not uh, victimizing here and saying we're innocent. Um, and I think our major problem is the lack of citizenship and nationhood. I say that we're still looking for that nation that doesn't exist to this day. Uh, we're not a nation, unfortunately. It's, uh, I don't know how you define citizenship in Lebanon. I don't think it really... I mean, what happened on October 17th, I saw the seeds of that being planted. And that was kind of encouraging, but I don't know where that is now. And again... There's micro change, but it's it's not enough. So, I try in that chapter, dysfunctional compromise, to summarize what I think are the major political problems. Um, another problem I think today is Hezbollah. Um, you know, it's the elephant in the room. It's having a non uh, you know a non state actor with um, this arsenal of weapons, and today, whether you're with the Palestinian because, and I think most, most of the Lebanese are, to be honest, but being dragged in another war is not a Lebanese decision. I find it mind-boggling that we're just sitting and watching what's happening in the South and it's basically just, you know, business as usual. Uh, there's no government. No one can stop them. No one can say, you know, uh, we don't want to be part of this. Uh, they don't have that decision. Um, and then the biggest problem, and this is what my book is about impunity the lack of accountability is why this country is never moving forward and it's what I end up the book with if we don't have accountability there's no future Uh, whether it's the Beirut explosion or the civil war or the financial crime that we've you know we're all victims of if that is not there's no accountability also now then when? (laughs) when?
0: You know, if there's a climax in the book, I think it's in that section. It's part three, the impossible quest for justice. Yeah, and Tracy Najjar's story is one of those stories. That's, I think, where the emotions really kick in, and I got that from you as well. It's, it's my
1: favorite section of ah, the book. <laughs> good, yeah.
0: It's uh, it's it's so well written. So, I mean, I know the subject is tragic, Thank but you. it is it is. It's easy to read and take from it. Um, also, what you mentioned already, which is important, is that there has to be a reminder of women's rights in this country. And you do that mm. aggressively, which is good. And it's not simple women passing their nationality because they, don't, they marry a foreigner or whatever. No, no, you're going into religious laws, too. You're going mm. into marriage, divorce, all that. I think, and, and structural discrimination. I like that this book is dedicated in a way in that direction. I think it offers it a, a unique angle. Most Lebanese books on this kind of subject, impunity, don't really go there enough. So I think you did that. Uh, and it's an advantage. Allow me to pick your brain on what you said earlier, which is, it takes me back to a, a moment. We're both not alive to experience. You hint at it a bit in the book, but it's your parents' generation and mine. And I mean, I, I know I'm a little older than you because of AUB years, but we're both in the same generation. So we grew up post-Civil War for the most part, yeah. with some memory of Civil War. But I know neither one of us knows what it's like to be here pre-Civil War. We've read about it. We watch about it. Maybe sometimes we have nostalgia about it. We share photos about it. We pretend. That like, we know. That we know. We assume what our parents are telling us is true. Yeah. Maybe it's exaggerated to a bit, but there's something there. I like what you said, that we're all watching, and this is real. We're all watching our phones. Probably in this episode, we're scrolling our Twitter and Instagram to see what's happening here in relation to what's happening in Gaza right now. And you use the word mind-boggling. Okay, let's, let's use that as the template. All the other stuff we talk about all the time the inefficient sectarian model that we still use, we haven't reformed. These quotas that are outrageous for the 21st century. And I like the quote, I think it's Nadim Shahadi, who's an economist, that Lebanon skipped the 20th century, which is true. We're in a way an Ottoman state, even until today, long overdue with reform that never happened. So let's say that's real. I don't know if What we're witnessing right now is natural to Lebanon. In other words, I think we're in a situation that no one wants.
2: Mm.
0: Meaning, I don't know if we're, you said it earlier, you don't want, you're not, um, we're not victims. We search for uh, support abroad. I don't know how much weight that holds right now. I really think we're paying a price for being part of Iran's security. And that's why we're scrolling our phones. I don't think we're scrolling for any other reason. Now, this is a huge assertion, and I know it's not shared all the time, and it's debated all the time, but I still feel like the things you drew out from our history, and this goes back to the 1600s. Some of your writing goes back to Fakhl din I don't know if I can blame history and inefficiency and sectarianism for why this country has completely collapsed. It doesn't sound right to me. No,
1: as I said, it's also the regional and international interference. And, you know, as we're o- we've always been part of uh, political agendas that go beyond our borders. We have. But what I mean is th- that we somehow wanted this. We've attracted this. You're talking about Iran. There's a part of the Lebanese, there are political parties who are Iran's allies and they're welcoming this interference the same way others are welcoming, you know, Saudi Arabia's uh, support and, and interference. This is what I mean. But I totally agree with you that we are somehow taken hostage by regional and proxy wars all the time. I mean, the Syrian conflict as well. We were, we were dragged into this. Did we really want to? I'm not sure. So, no, I agree with you. It's just, I don't think we're innocent.
0: Let me use that to actually talk about something that we thought we should talk about. And I, you know, I had my pen at the quote and I lost it. Let me find it again. (coughs) This book, for stupid reasons, is banned in the Emirates. Mm. Let me say that. Stupid reasons. Now, I found it. It's.
1: It's in the um, okay. a doomed uh, revolution when I'm talking about parliamentary elections.
0: Yes, uh, you know. And I
1: mean? I'm saying that Hezbollah is um, talking about Hezbollah and the Lebanese forces. Let me get the quote. And I say, yeah. yeah.
0: I always have it on my pen, and then I lose it. Here we go. It's in a doomed revolution, right? Yeah. Ah, here it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's literally a paragraph in a book that's 220 pages long. Yeah. Which is I absurd. think
1: they read every line. Oh. Um, I don't know if it's Are this sentence. Are they the ones that found the
0: grammar mistakes?
1: No, I did. <laughs> you did. Okay. Um, listen, I mean, my publisher was in touch with the censorship committee. Yeah. And this is what they said, is that there's a line in there that accuses the UAE of funding and supporting a political party. That's the only line. That's the only direct reference to them. Right. Um. Yeah, I'm very sorry that they did this. But then it shows that there's a kind of a zero tolerance. Right. Um, and I stand by what I wrote. Uh, some people ask me if I would appeal. I don't think the UAE is a democracy. Why would I appeal? Yeah. I don't think I would win that appeal. So that's it. People who want to read it will find a way to buy it and, and read it.
0: I think it's an advantage when you get censored by a country like the Emirates. Book sales go up. Maybe and we can all read it online anyway. Yeah, it's, it's on Kindle
1: as well. So, uh, right.
0: So, anyone who really wants to read it will get it. It's like censoring movies here. It doesn't work. Barbie became a hit. Yes, exactly. For no reason. It's not People that good who didn't of a movie.
1: want to watch it. <laughs> I went and watched it. Yeah. For no reason. Yeah. Just curious. You become curious. Why yeah, I'm is like, it bad? Exactly?
0: I don't, I still don't understand. Why would you ban?
1: But I don't think those who wanted to ban it watched the movie, to be honest.
0: Ah, that's interesting. So yeah. here it's sloppily banned. There it's meticulously banned. No, I think
1: banned. I think the UAE, like, really, they check all the books. I was warned by my publisher that there was a risk. Mm. Apparently, political books get
0: censored a lot. So, so I'm going to be very diplomatic because I don't want to be one of those people that hammer you on this subject. No, and it's you okay. got a lot of heat for it, so I'm not. Yes. I'm not here to make it uncomfortable. <laughs> I'd like to read that sentence because it's not it's there's nothing problematic in the no. in the assertion of the emirates but there's another thing that comes out in it which mm. made it a Lebanese talking point.
3: Mm.
0: Okay. So the far right exactly so quote the far right Lebanese forces opposed to Hezbollah and now reportedly funded by Saudi Arabia and United Emirates have also gained considerable power. Maybe it's the following two sentences. There are two sides that feed off each other in dangerous ways. The country, as it looks now, is divided among those who support Hezbollah and those who want it to be disarmed. I think had this not been censored in the Emirates, no one would have picked up on this section. I think it would have just been... I don't know.
1: I feel like I was saying the obvious and... um... To me, these are two extremes and they're the major winners in the elections. I was really talking about the elections. That was the context. I don't bring up the Lebanese forces, I think, anywhere else. Maybe in the context of of the civil war. No, I think what bothered the Lebanese is that I called the Lebanese forces far right. I mean, what would I call them?
0: Uh, You know, I think, let let me be devil's advocate here. Yeah. But again, I don't want to... No, no, go ahead. All right. I, I think it's, not the best choice of words, but this is a, my <clears throat> opinion. It doesn't. Mean what that would you choose? Far
1: Christian, right. nationalistic.
0: Far right to me is Hezbollah.
1: Oh, it's. I'm telling you, they are two extremes. It's the same.
0: So this is, I think, the you know that the the,
1: the the French far right used to come and train the Lebanese forces in 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 uh, Lebanon I mean maybe the discourse sounds more moderate now when, when they speak but if you scratch they're far right if you want to label them like they're Christian, it's, nationalistic. Um, there's no
0: adjective for Hezbollah. I think that's where it became problematic. Oh,
1: no, because I speak about Hezbollah and in the introduction.
0: No, no, I meant, sorry, that section, I think the reason it ruffled some feathers, yeah. I think. It's but if
1: you want to read only this page and this sentence, yeah, but right. this is a book. Yeah. It's not an article. I very much uh, introduce Hezbollah in the introduction. I say who they are, yeah. what, what they have uh, very much. I call them the elephant in the room uh, at the end. So trust me. I think I'm very fair when it comes to them and nowhere am I like, what, what bothered also some people is that they said, oh, you're putting them on the same pedestal. No, if you read the book, I am not. I'm just saying they are two extremes. Yes, they feed off each other. I'm sorry. And this is how the election was, was framed. A lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of votes, and I talk about it, were a reaction, a reactionary vote, not a conscious vote. We're against Hezbollah or we, we're against the Lebanese forces. No one voted on a, on a program or, uh, you know, on a political agenda. It was very instinctive,
0: I would almost say. I think there could be a potential, potential misunderstanding hmm. for somebody who doesn't know the Lebanese political scene or doesn't necessarily have the attention span to look back. Could into- I
1: explain it?
0: No, no, uh, I'm I'm being very... I'm not trying to be... No, 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 I'm saying... I think it's... Certain words make it feel like these are two militias. One is less armed. One is heavily armed. Mm. One is... And use the word power.
1: But I don't say they're a militia and I don't say they're armed here. I only say that Hezbollah has the largest arsenal as a non-state actor before.
0: So there's a difference. I think that's the adjective maybe in that sentence... I think because it's the way I read it, and I'm I'm literally I had to find it. I didn't know where it was. I had to skim and, and look for it. I had to do the PDF search. Yeah. Because it's buried. It's not the central part of the of the no. book at all. I I don't know if they can be compared as one and the same or two sides of the same coin.
1: But that's again in my own reading. Right. right exa- and to me yeah. the two sides there, there are two extremes, and it's 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 dangerous. What we've seen on the streets is also dangerous. Even during the October seventeenth um, uprising.
0: Oh, uh, but Hezbollah you know, has far more responsibility. Oh, for Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But both
1: were involved in in the protests. Um, the Lebanese forces were also part of the protests, um, and they thought you know they're uh, if you want um, they're entitled to ride that wave mm. and to be against the political establishment um, I spoke to people on, on the streets so um, again to me they are two extremes this is how I see it um, and who's who came out of the elections really powerful they did who won the largest and I'm not talking about Hezbollah yeah. but yeah. from the other side they won they, they increased the number of, of seats more than uh, anyone else they were major winners in, in these elections. so
0: Right. But I think, the, I think it's because there's a certain uh, association with military infrastructure today. Mm. And security-like violence. And what we we're talking about earlier, we're watching what Hezbollah is doing at the border. I think that's where it becomes they're not necessarily two of the same. They're different. I think... It has to be read in context. And that's but you what, have
1: to read the whole book because yeah. I don't talk about, you know, yeah. I don't talk about military, anything military here. I'm talking about elections and rhetoric and agendas, etc. So it's it's in that context that it has to be taken.
0: Let's move on from that endless debate, which I've been in for five years or so. No, no,
1: no worries. Uh, it's, it's important.
0: Should we keep going?
1: No, <laughs> no we're no. going to bore them.
0: I know. Or maybe not. They're all listening, actually.
1: In the Q and will I'll I'll give you. No, no, I want to leave.
0: I'll leave before talk. you talk. Um. I voted for you. No, I'm that's actually no, I couldn't vote for you. No, had Meshnu lost? Oh my god! <laughs> now don't ask me any questions. <laughs> You're a great writer. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it to the Q and i uh, I'd like to talk. a a little more about uh, the book itself and the storytelling quality. Uh, In addition to impunity, you're talking about everything that this country lost since October 17 and the free fall. And the stories are dedicated to women's survival. Mm. So and, and in a way, you hint at this many times that it's in our DNA. We're able to do this. We're capable. Civil society steps in. It's women on the front lines. Mm. During the protests, it's women on the front lines too. And we have a really important person in the audience, Jemena Haddad. I'm losing my voice now. So this is not a, I mean, women have been pivotal in change. So looking now at women's survivability <coughs> uh, and looking at the future, you've said already that there's a hopelessness in the air. Are you able to merge the two together?
1: Survival and hopelessness?
0: Yeah, in other words, seeing a country that collapses, but also knowing that women remain strong. It's almost like uh, there's mm. an oxym, not oxymoron, what's the word? Yeah.
1: The... I, I say that, I, I never debate the fact that we're strong, mm. but I think I debunk what I call the myth of resilience. Mm. And I say that we're strong, but we're not resilient. And I'm talking about women and Lebanese as well. And I think the narrative of resilience is very counterproductive. Um, You
0: call it the myth of resilience in the book.
1: I think the only people who are resilient today are the politicians. And I think convincing ourselves that we are resilient doesn't help because it means accepting the status quo and accepting the fact that that's it. It's always been like this and there's nothing we can do. There's, you know, it leads to hopelessness. Mm. Uh, and I think we're surviving. We're not resilient because I did a lot of research on resilience. And resilience, the concept of resilience, is your ability to adapt but to better circumstances. It's your ability to live but move forward. You're not stuck. We're stuck. It's not survival. Resilience is not survival. You can compare nature and resilience, you know, when there's a fire. And trees burn, but then there are new routes and new branches that um, come out after. That's resilience. So you need new blood, you need better alternatives, you need solutions, you need to get rid of whatever oppression you're, you're living. That's resilience. But when there's an explosion and you just stand up on your feet and you start cleaning your apartment, and this is what I've seen in many stories, that's not resilience. That's just adapting. We're conforming to uh, an unbearable reality. This is what the women in this book um, are doing. Uh, When you're, you know, spending your time looking for medicine and how to make ends meet at the end of the day, that's survival. When you go through trauma again and again and again and you don't heal, that's survival. That's trauma and survival. That's not resilience.
0: Let's talk about survival. Was it yesterday that you were at AUB, at IFI? Uh, Monday. Monday. Today's Wednesday. So two days ago, I sort of looked and I saw that Tatiana Hasruti was one of the panelists, almost like a moderator to the discussion.
1: No, she was one of the speakers. I suggested her, yeah, because she's in the book.
0: So that kind of survivability, (laughs) is that what you're talking about? In other words, a woman is and it's it's actually just after Tracy Najjar's uh, story she loses her father he's employed in the silos
1: all of his life that was his career yeah.
0: and it's almost minute by minute recollection he calls his family wanting his blanket because mm. he's going to spend the night working
1: because of a uh, wheat shipment
0: right and then minutes later he's gone and the family spends days hoping he will emerge the daughter tatiana waits until they present DNA proof that he's gone. She's now a panelist talking about this at IFI. Is that the kind of survivability that you're talking about?
1: No, I think Tatiana is speaking because she's fighting for justice. All of these Mm. women have to fight. Mm. The families of of the victims, I'm not sure everyone is fighting with them. That's the problem. But I think they are fighting. They owe it to their loved ones. Uh, And they haven't grieved. These are people who are not grieving. Tracy and Paul have been grieved. Tatiana hasn't grieved. Um, Some of them, maybe more than others, because they sought some psychological support. Uh, Tatiana did. But it's, you know, they're not moving on. Uh, They're stuck and they're fighting for justice. They will not reach peace until that happens. And so, you know, they need truth first. They need to know what happened. They need um, kind of a, an apology or a responsibility. They need to blame someone. And those who are responsible need to be held accountable. Only then can they start grieving and making peace with what happened. But they're still stuck. I mean, we're not, we haven't even reached truth. No one knows. Everything I mention is based on forensic uh, experts, investigative journalists, Human Rights Watch. There's... Nothing official about what happened on August 4th to this day. And that's horrible for the families. Um, It reminds me a bit of, you know, those whose loved ones disappeared during the civil war. To this day, they don't know what happened to them. They don't know where they are. They never buried them. They never grieved them. And, you know, like I think of Wadad Halawani, whom I mention in the book. That woman is still fighting to this day. She's still stuck in that you know, so if that's uh, not
0: survival, what is survival? And that broad
1: Yeah, fight. that's part of survival. You have to fight to to stay alive. Mm. That is survival. They're fighting for justice. Siham is fighting to pay for her generator uh bill. It's it's like that. Um you know, Syrian refugees are are fighting for, you know, to make ends meet. I mean, the stories that I that I have or to stay safe. Um you know, migrant workers in the book fighting for, um, you know, uh, their economic and, you know, rights as individuals. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're fighting to go back because some of them want to leave and, and they can. So I think the fight is part of the survival. You're not supposed to fight all of your life. What? You, you, there are, you know, you're, there are things that should be your right. This is what Tracy says, and it's the quote to her chapter. Yeah. I'm not supposed to fight for justice. Justice is my right. People here are fighting, you know, uh, to just finish the day.
0: Actually, it's more than that. Tracy could be an obstacle to justice, but justice should still be uh, delivered. In other words, victims can shy away from it if they want to, but the state should still do it despite that. Yeah. So what Tracy is saying is fundamental. Yeah. We had this exchange at her. Actually, you mentioned. She shouldn't
1: ask for it. You know what I mean?
0: And even if she doesn't want it, it should be delivered. Yeah. And that's a fundamental right that's gone. So it's survived. The battle is survival. Yeah. And survival is the battle too. Very much. Let's talk about your own survival and your own battle. It's the... (laughs) Do we have to? It's two paragraphs (laughs) at the end of the introduction. Yeah. It's your words. (laughs) Okay. I'll just ask you to share the last... It's this section here. Okay.
1: I have not yet made peace with 4 August. I don't know if I ever will. There's a voice in my head which keeps telling me that I could have done more that day. That night, I stayed at home as I could not get into Beirut. At that stage, I had no idea how big the explosion really was, how much loss and tragedy was out there. I wasn't sent on assignment until the early hours of the following morning. As a journalist, I feel like I failed. As a Lebanese, I also feel like I have failed. As a human, I feel guilty just for being alive. I have played the scenario in my head over and again. My daughter and mother were on the port road at 6.07 p.m. the night before the blast. It seemed so absurd that not only was I safe, but they were safe too. It is hard to accept. This book, these accounts, might be a way for me to process my own trauma and guilt and better understand that day. But it is mostly an attempt to make peace with it. I feel as a journalist, I owe it to all these people, to my country, to
0: tell these stories. So, it's thanks to insomnia. Hmm? Thanks to insomnia. Nights that you couldn't sleep. Yeah. Uh, Emotional about other people's recollections. I'm thinking back to your own upbringings and your family's own trauma. Thanks to those sleepless nights, and I'm going to guess a lot of coffee too, you pulled off this book. I highly recommend it to anyone in the audience. Get it. Thank it's you. worth it. We will take a 10-minute break. I will run away from Jumana. No.
1: Q&A. There's a and a after, no?
0: You can order drinks if you'd like. 10 minutes, we'll start the Q&A. Thanks to everyone. It's a full house tonight. It means a lot. Thank 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 you.
1: She yeah. So up.
0: since she's in the bathroom, let's start the Q&A. <laughs> no. Uh so there's a microphone will be passed around. Anyone who has questions about anything we spoke about. Uh let's keep it civil because things are tense anyway. We actually got through a difficult subject unscathed. Yeah. So good for us. Let's keep it as civil as possible. Are there any questions at the top? No <laughs> Sara no, just introduce yourself and uh <clears throat> what you do for a living who you're married to
1: <laughs> Is that necessary <laughs>
4: Hi um thank you so much for doing this tonight Sara Yassin architect activist uh, ran for elections last year in Beirut that uh, I have a question for Dalal and a question for Roni um I was very moved by, of course, by the book and thank you so much for writing the book. Uh, But I was moved by your openness, your honesty and your vulnerability as a writer to share what you have shared regarding your personal story. Some parts were uh, biographical and also your own traumas and and whatnot. Uh, Thank you. To what extent, I mean, I'm also in the process of writing, and knowing that Lebanon is a very small place, uh, what was your uh, intention in in writing the the chapter about yourself and your daughter? Uh, And did you have any, were you intimidated or fear of, you know, uh, critique? Uh, So that's for that. uh, And Roni, kind of a joke. You asked me to ask you this question. Oh no. Will you when will you uh officially <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> when this luck? is a Juman Asara question? Yeah. When will you officially uh become a, a Lebanese forces member? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why the oh my god. <laughs>
0: should I take it as a compliment
4: <laughs> no but one one on a serious note one word that uh, realizing i'm being a part of the october 17th movement a mistake that i have done and i think the movement has done uh, although i agree with dalal that uh, there uh, it's it's a spectrum and we're discussing two extremes I have made my own rectification in my narrative, and I said that, we, we've spoken about that. I cannot put on the same pedestal a thief or a civil war warlord with uh, a militia like Hezbollah. And I personally, I would like to, uh, you know, in my future work and writing and with colleagues, I think this dis- distinction should should be made.
0: Let me answer <clears throat> it quickly and then I'll... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I can't be bought, so there's no chance in hell I will join the Lebanese forces. Uh, The second thing is, I enjoyed our episode so much. I spoke to Sarah Yassin the day she resigned from Beirut, Medinati, and stayed running in the elections in 2022. It's one of my favorite episodes, so good for you. And uh, when are you joining the National (laughs) Bloc? No, I will never join the Lebanese forces. But... I'll say one more thing and then I'll give you the mic. Uh, it goes back to the initial emphasis on, on facts and truth. I think that's where I come from. I can have um, an opinion that's quite uh, foul of the Lebanese forces and then share what you implied already, which is that it seems more and more like a false equivalence over time. But I think it's the question of, what you emphasized earlier and then first person narrative. I don't know the words that would come out if I was writing this kind of book. So, the Um.
1: Yeah. So your question forgot uh, for <laughs> Um, You were talking about like, you know, if I, that's the second part of the question, being critiqued or for being part of the story, right? This is, this is why I was a bit hesitant and I talk about it in the book is that I always felt privileged and I still feel privileged compared to these women. And I say that I've had a, the opportunity to use my voice um, when they didn't. And I was like, why do I have to talk about myself? And I haven't been through anything, you know, as, as compared to them. Um, I had this discussion with my editor and I was convinced that I think it also gives a lot of credibility. To the book because I'm part of the story. I've been affected by it. I'm a woman. I'm Lebanese. Uh, I interacted with these with these women, and I kind of owe it to them because they opened up and they were vulnerable that I would also open up about my story and I would be um, vulnerable as well. So it's for all these various reasons that I wanted to to be you know to write my own uh, chapter. I mean, I, ha- I haven't been criticized, to be honest, but that was my fear that, um, that I would be. Actually, a lot of people liked uh, my chapter and it's very much about my daughter also a lot. And the idea is because I mentioned my grandmother at the beginning, I thought it's this generations of women. You know, it's like a thread uh, that starts with my grandmother, ends with my daughter. And I'm kind of me and the other women are, um, are in between because, as you know, there are different ages The book ends with someone who is 86-year-old, but then you have women in their 20s, 30s, 50s, etc. So,
0: yeah. Other questions? Jumana? Just a brief introduction to anyone who doesn't know you.
2: No, it's my name is Jumana Haddad. Um, I'm also an author, mainly. And I have a question for you, Dalal, and one for you, Roni. Dalal, at the beginning of this talk, you spoke about something that... I'm very conflicted about and that I think about a lot. You said that when you went to Columbia University, one of the main lessons that they would try to teach you there as a journalist was to be impartial and objective. Personally, I don't believe in that. I believe it's a big lie. There's not one human being who can really be objective and impartial you cannot take away your experiences your own opinions your thoughts your convictions from you know the whole formula and then present what you said to be the truth because there's there's also not one truth We have to acknowledge that so do you really believe in that how objective can a journalist be? How objective should a journalist be? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I would like to hear your answer. But let me ask Ronnie the question. Ronnie, um, same topic—the you know analogy between Lebanese forces and Hezbollah. Honestly, if you take away the military power and the amount of damage that each party can cause, which is completely I mean, not comparable, and I acknowledge that. I would like to know how are they really different? Because to me, the real criteria when I'm comparing two Lebanese parties is how far away from confessionalism they are and how much closer to the idea of a so-called citizenship they can be. To me, both are far right. To me, both are very extremists. To me, both speak either about, even if they don't say it out loud, and many of them are smart enough not to say it out loud, either about being a Christian or about being a Shia. So I would really love to know
1: how you make the difference between these two. Thank you.
0: Do you want to go first? Yeah. yeah.
1: So uh, on objectivity, I think objectivity and impartiality are not the same. Um, I don't believe in objectivity. And I think when you are a journalist, even when you choose the angle of the story, you choose a sound bite from a, an interview or, or a quote, who to interview, you're not objective. This is your own way of like seeing how to, you know, frame and write uh, the story. I think what I strive for is kind of balance. Sometimes, you know, just you can't admit to the other side. As you're saying, there's not one truth, but there are always different sides to a story. There's not just one story, whether you agree with that or not. And my job is to tell you what's on the other side as well. This is what I strive for. But I think you can be impartial and still be truthful. I, you know, What I'm seeing today is the media is not being truthful. This is the problem. And by truthful, I don't mean there's one truth, but like just omitting what's on the other side completely and accepting certain, you know, like they're very selective with their standards. What we learn at, at Columbia or whatever, like what journalism should be about, they apply it in certain locations and on, in certain places. But when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, no, we don't. Uh, We have no problem jumping into conclusions and, you know, being an advocate of Ukrainian people, which very much for that. But I've seen the hypocrisy of European countries, even when it comes to dealing with refugees in Europe. I just did a story for CNN recently, and this um, Médecins Sans Frontières um, worker told me, you know, it's a, a Ukrainian refugee would get his papers done and settled in the span of a week. It's not even as easy, like for me, and I, I I've come like legally and I have, you know, tons of documents. But bring someone like from another country, like another refugee. I'm talking about refugees here, so they have a refugee status, and it takes them forever to you know get their paperwork and their documentation done. So there's a lot of hypocrisy uh, that we're seeing. It's not just the media, but also the countries um, themselves uh, and the way they're dealing with all of these, uh, these conflicts. And I think as a journalist, you have to point to that. Um, and it upsets media organizations. Like They don't like that. Um, I, I don't understand why, because this is our job, is to show people that there's a duality. There's, there are selective standards. If you have standards, then apply them everywhere. Don't just select. It was, you know, it's, it's my first time living in Europe. And my husband and I, we have this discussion. I'm disappointed. You grow up here thinking that, oh, Europeans are all about, you know, democracy and freedom of speech and freedom of expression and human rights. And then you get there and you realize the hypocrisy. And you're like, what the hell is this? You preach all day that you're better than us. But then, this duality and hypocrisy is just unacceptable. The way you deal with foreigners, the the, the way you deal with various wars and, and conflicts, your funding, where you stand. Fine, I mean, you want to condemn the Hamas attacks on Israel, please do, but then do the same. Where were you all these years? It's just crazy.
0: And we need to do an episode together. We should Oh God,
1: She's not as diplomatic as I am. I'm warning you.
0: Yeah, not as diplomatic as me. <laughs> but everyone I know that worked with you had a great time. They're all scarred mentally and emotionally. They're all crying in Dubai.
2: Actually <laughs> You do
0: <clears throat> Maybe I'll seek it from you after I answer this question. I'll, I'll answer it the best way I know how. Uh, taking from what Dalal said, I'm not a journalist, you're a journalist, I'm not an author, you're an author, you set out to write a very difficult book and go down that difficult road of offering first-person narrative and historical context the way it makes sense to you. I have not done that. So I know I'm at a disadvantage already. I do think what Dalal said is true when it's taken to its absolute. We all make individual decisions that are subjective. And I think it really goes down to who you want to talk to and why. We're always <coughs> doing that. But I think striving for objecti- objectivity is still the noble mission. And I have to say, I do disagree on one thing. I think there is one truth. I don't think there's multiple truths.
1: Maybe multiple perspectives, but like you. Yeah,
0: Some, I think, Dalal, you said it. There are many stories. There's yeah, yeah. endless stories, especially in a country that lost its agency. And there's multiple narratives, too. Yeah. I think narratives in Lebanon today are often confused with fact. I think, but this is my understanding. Okay. Uh, I'll pick at it in a way that is also fast. Uh, perfect timing for me. Okay.
1: This reminds me so much of August 4th, whenever I right hear ambulances. Huh? It's like all we could hear.
0: When it comes to sectarianism, there are many parties that are awful in that sense. When, sectarian is, when sectarianism is assumed to be a negative trait, maybe not its neutral meaning, not its descriptive meaning, but its emotionally charged meaning, these are extremely sectarian institutions. Okay. Uh, when it comes to identity, I can find many better ideas than anything regarding the Lebanese forces right now. I don't need, I don't need to look that far away from them. When it comes to citizenship and understanding of what Lebanon is today and the role of the state, I do think, this is where I will diverge, I think what Lebanese forces were when we were kids is night and day from what they are today. And this is my, I'm going down the first person narrative, my fear of the Lebanese forces in the 1980s doesn't exist today. Uh, the security that they used to determine through violence. I don't see it as mainstream right now. I see it as isolated, and actually I see it as restraint. You mentioned capability. Every single Lebanese party that is governing in Lebanon had that capability. I think all of them go back to the civil war and were involved in different ways. Capability is different than what is happening right now. What Hezbollah has done, I think, is fundamentally different than what the Lebanese forces have done in the last 33 years. I'll also add to that, this is my reading, but I'm I'm not a geopolitical analyst or a political one.
1: Neither am
0: I. I think the reason we're not in a civil war, the way you're implying, which is multiple parties that can kill each other, I think the reason we're not at 1970 or approaching 1975 is because I don't think we fully understand Hezbollah. And I think this is a group that leans on the army to fight its opponents, and it's a group that can eliminate serious threats. I don't see the Lebanese forces acting that way. I do remember them acting that way, and actually, they were a geographic canton. They were taxing people. They had buses, almost like a semi-government. semi-government. I simply don't see that today. And I think it's fair to suggest the 13 MPs that emerged from October 17, they were able to work with Samir Jaja to a degree. If they're willing to work with Hezbollah, I can't see them as positive actors right now. So I do see stark differences. And I I think you said it, uh, they are far right as well. Yes, they are. They are actually the definition of far right. But maybe in Lebanon, maybe... We put right on Christians and left on Muslims or right on... Yeah, so maybe... Which has
1: nothing to do with religion. Yeah,
0: maybe they're both far right. And they're both far right. Let me pull from Dalal's book. It's Hezbollah that is taking precautions in the port, not the Lebanese forces. And I want to make this about the book right now. I live in an apartment in Marim Khayr, Actually, we're doing this in a cafe that was exploded by that blast. I have glass in my fridge. I almost—I could have died if I was in that apartment. It's not because of the Lebanese forces. So that is where the, that's where narrative comes to truth. I can't see them as the same. Capability and intent and desire during anarchy, who knows what could happen in the next few years? I think we're inching closer and closer to a point Hezbollah cannot govern this mess. And this type of governance is not working for them. Let me add one more thing and then I'll stop. Um, The moment you see a president in Baabda, and the moment you see a new prime minister, and the moment you see the currency appreciating, Hezbollah got something. That's how bad things are when it comes to their role in Lebanon. That is not the Lebanese forces today. They're not gonna get anything the way Hezbollah will get. And I stand, I stand with that belief. I know civil society and the spirit of October 17 was to put them all in the same basket and say, yani, it works when you're protesting, but I don't think it matches politics. That's what I'll say. You're coming uh, to Alias very soon. But we'll talk about your writing, because your erotic fiction is far more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Was it the vagina monologues? No, no. Shahrazad. Sorry, yeah.
1: killed Shahrazad.
0: In the spirit of the vagina monologues. Yeah. Other questions? And just say who you are, please.
5: Hello. Uh, I'm a psychologist and a social activist. And um, I'd like to take what Dalal said uh, in the book or what I got from it. Sorry, I didn't read it yet. I just bought it. And exactly about accountability and what you were just uh, saying. I think if we want to help people accountable, we have to somehow stop giving excuses to some parties just because they are less worse or acting less worse than others. And um, this is somehow a debate I already had with you on one of your tweets earlier. Um, And I think it's very important to remind ourselves, and this is my question to both of you, how important it is to really hold people accountable. And yeah, it's true. uh, The port explosion didn't happen because of the Lebanese forces, but the Lebanese forces has caused a lot of issues in Lebanon and they are part of the corruption. They have done so much uh, bad <laughs> things to They're
1: the They're part of the port that, management yeah, yeah. So too. They get their forget, share.
5: Exactly. So we cannot forget what they did and not because some of the 13 people who reached the parliament did find a common ground with these people, it means that these people are better than the others. In my opinion, and that's what I'm most disappointed about, and this is why the only person I fully support up until this moment is Halima Kakur, is because she stood for what we talked about in the beginning. If these 12 people somehow still see that Jihad Azur is fine because he's not affiliated with Hezbollah although he have done a lot of bad things in where he was and the position he played, then I think we're in a huge problem. So my question to both of you, I don't know who would like to answer it, but if we want to hold people accountable, we have to hold everyone accountable. We have to stop saying that these people should be held accountable before others. Um, So how are we choosing our priorities? Is it that our fight is only against Hezbollah? If this is our fight and this is what we called for in 17 October, then 17 October is not what
0: we said it was i'll I'll start very quickly now i know you're you're referring to me on the twitter was it ortalal was me now now i remember who you are what what did oh i remember you from (laughs) you're friends with shadin she's why i came she was introduced to me through you now i remember who you are um thank you for reminding me of that it's it's your, your right to point at that tweet uh I don't think Shihad Azor is the same thing as Sliman Franji. No, I'm sorry. They're fundamentally different people.
5: <laughs> if Samir Jaja <laughs> and others really believe in the change, then why won't they accept a name that? the 13 people name and they support rather than... But did have they name anyone? Name? But the no, problem no, is the 13 you know, MPs yeah, yeah. as well. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I, the I the problem this. is the political immaturity of some MPs and I don't blame them. They've just joined, uh, you know, politics and, and parliament and maybe we need to give them more time because we gave the others decades. But I think politics is is nasty it's dirty everywhere you go not just here you have to make some compromises without giving up of course on your on your values but i think him you know, being so idealistic uh, and so purist um, is counterproductive yani i would have preferred if halima and other people who were opposed to j- jihad az had worked together seriously to suggest a serious candidate because they didn't they were a part of the circus that was happening in Parliament yani every session they had a new name and putting a, a white vote, whatever a blank vote or Yanni, what is this? We elected you but, to do serious politics. But don't you Wish think to this live is part in they knew
5: they can't make this person reach where they want to reach because the others didn't want...
1: But I didn't hear about you, any yeah. serious... Can why I, can why I, would I,
5: you yeah. name someone serious if you know that this person would not make
0: you st- it? Right. No, that's yeah, actually, you, that's you
1: still try, you lobby, or at least come together and unite. And I, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's uh, I'm not defending uh, the, the others best. Kamena, there's a lot of immaturity, and I say this in the book, and the way they've been dealing with with all of this, even when they were electing the parliamentary committees, it was a joke. It was a joke. Come together on these fundamental uh, things. Yeah.
0: Can I say one uh, more? Just
5: one thing, and I I won't comment anymore. One last thing is that many of these 13 13 MPs did end up being not fully believing in uh, we're not only against Hezbollah. they did show this a few weeks after they were elected. So they wanted to reach the parliament. They said things they didn't believe. And I can start from the people who were elected in my area. What Michel Dwayne talked about before he became an MP is different than what Michel Dwayne talked about after he became an MP. So in a certain condition, we have to believe that these MPs couldn't name someone not only because they couldn't come together to choose a name, but because some people didn't turn out to be uh, believers and there are as much serious as political
1: divisions among them but i could see that even before they were elected and if you know the candidates and their profiles but i i don't think that's that's wrong i i'm also i think in politics you have sometimes on certain draft laws certain it's okay to shake hands or come together if it's for the greater public good whatever that is i'm not against that Anna, I'm against these people who are so idealistic and purist and they don't offer other alternatives. That's all I'm saying. And I agree with you. Of course, Hezbollah is not the only problem, but I think you are dealing here with like, I call it the elephant in the room and, you know, a serious problem. The others shook hands with it and we should also hold them accountable, by the way. And when it comes to the port... Um, yes, I agree with Roni. They probably didn't cause the explosion, but they're all part of the power sharing system in, in, in the port and they've all benefited from the corruption there and, and elsewhere. Yeah, I'll leave it at that too now. What's happening?
0: Look, I'm calling them every time. <laughs> okay. uh, you asked the right question. This is actually, it's the right question that he wouldn't have made it anyway, which is true. I, I think you said that th- there were not enough votes anyway for Jihad Azor, you're right but there was a symbolic majority that was within reach. A 65 vote would have sent the right message, I think, <coughs> the right message, and that change in opposition can work together when necessary, <coughs> and that ideology, or you mentioned puritanism or pure, yeah, purist, yeah, yeah. that that's not going to get in the way of putting a more favorable person in Baab, though. And I have to disagree with one thing. The vetting for a regional director at the IMF that is necessary Versus Bashar al-Assad's ally and Hezbollah's pick, these are not the same things. Halim Kakour makes it seem like they're the same things. I can't. Yeah, there should be a
1: third alternative, but unfortunately, the thirteen MPs like couldn't come up with a third uh, alternative, and. As you were saying, some people thought, you know, they achieved the objective of just, you know, not allowing frangia to, to, no, to win. No, but
0: Halima and Cynthia and Elias, sorry, their first names, when you know them, you can do that, right? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Voted for Ziad Baroud for foolish reasons. That wasn't principle. That was undermining change and opposition working together. Even Brahim Ibn Naimni, who we know, was as principled as they come. He chose his words carefully, but he voted for as <coughs> well. I think personally, I think that was the right message. And I don't know, I don't think they're immature. I think it's just ideological. They see their problem as the establishment in every way, shape, and form. And even though we're three shy of a symbolic majority, they chose to go with a name that was useless at that point.
1: Some of them don't have a background in in politics, Yanni. They're not as pragmatic. It needs time. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not judging them after two or three years. I think it's unfair. We need to give them time.
0: But she's as new as Najat Saliba. She's as new as other people. And Najat Saliba was willing to make that decision. I don't think of her as better than Najat for that reason.
1: I'm not saying someone is better than the other, to be honest. I I think we need to give them time. More
0: more aware. I think Halim is actually more aware. Halim has been involved in politics. Yes, she has. Some
1: have. I'm not talking about all of them anyway uh there's one more question
0: uh in the back so uh to dalal for... just who you are please. okay ellie
6: i uh i can't say my i'm an activist but i followed all the movements from quite some time and um, two things one for dalal it's good you didn't go to the port that day you would leave with more guilt than you come down it's Uh, Because there's not much you can do. You will see things that... So I don't know if that helps. Um, The other thing about... You mentioned Killun Yani Killun. And you mentioned also the 2015 protests. And my two cents, my very modest two cents is... Nike has a slogan which says, just do it. But when they want to create a new product, they don't just fucking do it. They do market analysis. They have planning. Killun Yani Killun was a great slogan but trying to make it the de facto operational plan served the people in power more than they served the people who were revolting because suddenly there was this whataboutism. There there were no priorities. I agree that everybody should be held accountable, but when you're weak, when you're a nascent small group and you're trying to overthrow people with billions of dollars of funding, you have to have your priorities right. And I'm not saying which priorities they should have been. I'm just saying that this is something that hurt everything more than it helped. And to draw parallels in 2015, for those who may, may or may not have been there, a big issue that we had at the time was we went down for a protest for garbage that was on the streets. And then these guys suddenly wanted to overthrow the regime. And some of us were like, no, let's focus on one person or two people, like the Minister of Environment or the Minister of Interior, because then you have a better chance to, 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 to make a breakthrough, to make your point. And then all of a sudden, they wanted to overthrow the regime, which is, again, we would love to see that, but that's just very shallow, like you said. So the question, sorry, this, is, this was long. The question is, what can be done today? We seem to have failed. It's been 40 years. And again, I think has been used by the people in power to just cause this paralysis and this whataboutism. And now we're debating what's the difference between the Lebanese forces and Hezbollah and who's on the right and who's not on the right. What can we do? This paralysis is terrible. And again, it has made people like you leave. Um, The rest of us are sometimes here, they're sometimes not here. What have we done and what can we do?
1: Um, I don't think I I have an answer to that. Maybe you do, but I have to say, I agree with what you said. I was there in 2015 and I saw how the whole thing was co-opted and I think it was a very bad strategy. And again, in 2019, I think that was the weak point is the lack of strategy, a lack of focal point. It was good to be leaderless at the beginning, but then when, you know, it remained as such, we lost the focus. I mean, there was... The crisis covid the explosion, all of these didn't help either, but I think somehow it all got lost because there was no sense of direction. We didn't know anywhere what was any anymore what was the objective and where we were um going um, i I don't know what's the solution today do do you know i i I think I left because I became <laughs> like i have no answer. I don't see where where it is. I know there's a lot of change at the micro level, and I was having this debate with um, some people on on Monday, that they do see change at the small scale level. But you have to be so patient for this to turn into, you know, something more tangible.
0: Before I try to answer, what are the micro changes that have happened?
1: I think there's um, more awareness and political education. Uh, There's a healthier public debate. I think... um, The 13 MPs were a micro-change. It's a result of the uh, October 17 movement. That's Mm -hmm. a tangible uh, micro-change. I think the sense that no one is uh, untouchable Mm -hmm. as well uh, without this leading to justice and accountability uh, per se. Micro-change, like, you know, the work that... um, It's been done in local communities, like in in Tripoli, when it comes to de-radicalization, bringing communities together, infrastructure projects, etc. But then again, everything is happening not from the state. It's a parallel, uh, you know, it's just something that's, it's a parallel system to -hmm. to, to the state. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think, yeah. The elections were probably like a a micro um, change.
0: Well, thanks for letting me ask you that because I look for them.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I'll try to answer, but I don't claim to have any authority here. Someone said it earlier, you're delusional if you actually are trying to predict the future. Yeah. I'm I'm just my assessment. Um, As long as there's regional disorder... And so long as Lebanon is not shielded by it, I think we're doomed to this type of destiny. How do you prevent Lebanon from being absorbed whenever there's a regional problem? I think that requires some international understanding that this country cannot survive otherwise. How it happens, I think there's a template. And it's the template, I think, has been used before. Divided countries were spared. We throw this word away so easily. What, neutrality? They were spared because they implemented it locally Mm. and internationally. We don't... There's so many examples of countries that did not collapse because of that. Even countries, their constitution (coughs) is named after it. We don't have that. But the template is there.
1: How do you reach neutrality, Animao? Right.
0: So, if Lebanon, I think, is to see a neutral time in its future... It means that a Lebanese expression that's political locally and a regional understanding that's favorable will line up. The last time that seemed to line up, sort of, didn't go all the way, was 2011, 2012, when the president of this country was demanding disassociation Mm. from Syria. That's a Lebanese initiative, to the point Hezbollah signed on initially. That's local homegrown aspiration. It didn't happen. But the template is there. And also, we forget. Maybe we throw it away because we don't see it working in our favor. We have a Security Council resolution that allows Lebanon to request soldiers on the Syrian border. It's called 1701. 1701 hasn't been implemented. No. And also, add to that, you need to have the conditions, although Tracy said she doesn't want to see this, but I think... I think it's necessary. Tracy Najjar in in your book says she doesn't want a tribunal for the port blast. I think the only hope that we have in seeing some information is a tribunal.
1: No, they want a fact-finding mission. That's how you find out the truth.
0: The fact-finding mission is the first stage for a tribunal. Yeah, for
1: accountability.
0: Exactly. So that, I think, has to happen, even when the criminals are not arrested. And when the criminals are not arrested, it's not because were flawed or were born wrong, it means the state cannot go after them. You need to have those conditions met to begin, I think, to see something working long term. That's why I, she left already, I guess Where day? she has gone. to
1: drive back. Oh, she has to go back to Eden, yeah.
0: That's why I think, in my opinion, I think the opportunity for a majority expression that resembles that was lost. That is even though you don't like it. Most of the room doesn't like it. That's the only tangible goal. No, no, no. Sorry, that's no, the only... I think t- we all agree. So, sorry. Let me say it again. The end of the sentence will be what you... T- the, the only tangible goal from March 14 was a majority expression. That's it. A majority expression that got a tribunal that put some light on the problem. The last time he tried to do that, there was no political backing waiting for him. We kind of just watched him disappear. When was the last time he even tried to go to his office? There's nothing. There's no investigation. I don't know. I see that as a template. And regional deals that happen... But you're
1: saying neutrality will only be achieved if there's like a regional, international, and local alignment, right?
0: Things have to line up favorably. Yeah. For I don't
1: a... see that. That's the
0: problem. I, neither do I. And yeah. I think I share the bleakness... And that the conditions are not there.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: Conditions maybe could have been met, maybe. But that's all past us now.
1: Maybe, sorry um, sorry, to add, maybe an electoral law? That's a bit different. I don't know, Sarah, if you agree. But the current electoral law doesn't help. I mean, it's a miracle that 13 new MPs made it uh, to parliament. This law is very, very much uh, made by the political establishment to protect uh, their seats. So... I don't know if there could be pressure on that uh, and a better electoral law that would push more independent people to reach power. That's another suggestion.
0: Uh, question in the back.
1: Hi,
3: uh, I'm Rafi, I'm a feminist and queer theorist and researcher. I'm also Alia's event coordinator. Uh, my question is for you, Dalal. Um, So I'm going back to the beginning of the discussion. I'm also going back to what Jumana asked. Uh, When we talk about journalists sharing um, truth or objective truth, I know you said it's not objectivity, but I don't want to get stuck on semantics right now. Um, What we know about the media and what's happening right now is that what's controlling the narrative is Western media. And we know that these media channels operate within the confines of capitalism, within the confines of foreign policy and all of that. So my question is, in the face of the ongoing genocide that's happening in Palestine, uh, what role does this uh, neutrality in journalism play um, when it comes to Lack of solidarity in the bigger picture, in the global picture. And how does one maintain in- integrity within journalism
1: in this context? It's, um, it's very hard. I've been grappling with this. I don't think you can be neutral. I don't think as a journalist you're supposed to be neutral. As I said You speak the truth no matter on what side it is. And if the truth is it's a genocide and there's enough evidence to back that, then it's a genocide. You shouldn't be afraid to speak up and to use these semantics or these words. And I think you need to speak up even within your own organization and institution. And there are a lot of brave journalists who are doing that today, even if they're paying the price for it. I always say, and this is something again I heard in journalism school, we can't stand still when there's injustice that's one of the reasons why we're journalists is not just to bear witness to what's happening but to tell the world about it so some action is taken it's it's indirect um if you want there's a reason why we're called a sulta raba like it's your job as as a journalist is to contribute to accountability when there's an injustice and your role is you know that Conduit for information and facts and and evidence, etc. And to speak up. I speak up and I don't care. I've reached a point. I said this week, I don't care what happens to me career-wise. This is not why I signed up for. Like, I'm a journalist not to stay neutral in cases like these and to stay silent. If this is the case, I don't want to be a, a journalist then. And then people will tell you, oh, but you, then you're not an activist. No, I'm not an activist. I'm still sticking to information and context and, and, and facts. But I'm sorry. It's just, there's a lot of nuance out there that's just being forgotten and, and being lost. And no, I don't think neutrality serves. It's my personal opinion. Some others might, might disagree. And those who know me know I'm not neutral. And I don't care what you think of me as a journalist if I'm not neutral. I've not been neutral on a lot of issues, not just not just this. So, I think it's okay to be engaged and to be vocal. And there are a lot of journalists in history who have done that. Um, yeah, it's it's you choose that. And and I think what's happening in media organizations
0: is shameful, to be honest. Let's have one more question. Uh, the gentleman in the back.
1: There's also my sister in
0: there. Oh, your sister wants two more questions. Sorry. William also. Oh, three more questions. <laughs> All right. So if William Very wants dim- to, we're, here, we're No? Ah, he wants to. Do uh,
7: you want to take priority or should I go? You got the, you got the mic. Just are. say who you uh, are, please. So, well, Hajj, uh, I'll leave it at that. Just <laughs> a returnee, let's put it that way. Um, two oh. questions, and I think for both of you, they're, they're fair game. Um, journalists, you know... Uh, People like uh, Cronkite, other Frost even, you know, they they played a role. They formed the electorate. They, you know, they, as you mentioned, took the challenges, made people know what the situation was objectively or not, but they, they kind of created an informed electorate. Um, so how do you see that happening in the region right now, whether it's, you know, Palestine, whether it's even in Lebanon? uh, journalists do have a role to kind of, you know, uh, inform the community. Uh, and then that can, you know, lead to, uh, in a, in a way can kind of, uh, you know, help create change. Uh, that being the first question, the second one is more, uh, and you mentioned this at the beginning, you know, Sam and McCann, you mentioned some names, others as well. Um, you know, you're back in Paris now, um, Samir has left. I'll even go back to 2005. Ziad Majid, for example, moved and is now in Paris. Paris so yeah. There's a lot of people abroad who have been activists, who have called for change across the different situations that Lebanon has gone through. Uh, but one thing you see is when we move abroad, that kind of fades away. And, I, and that's not a bad, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to kind of uh, frame it in a bad way, but you just feel like they lose. No, you're right something with the country and you know now more than ever whether we talk about you know politics whether we talk about uh politicians and so on they're receiving support you know for for better or worse from other countries abroad so you know you as a journalist abroad how can you pressure let's say france to say like no it's not okay after 2000 and let's say uh you know after 2017 for you to come in for the president to come in and get all of them on the same table and give them validation you know where can you play a role in that
1: um, on the first question, I'll only speak of Lebanon because I know the media well and I've worked for local media. The problem, unfortunately, is the funding. That so many journalists are... <laughs> are the mics
0: um, are still recording? You the, the, can't the, hear though. The mics are working still? Oh. okay. Oh, but the speakers are not. I see. Okay. Uh,
1: that so many journalists today are dependent on media organizations that are funded uh, by political entities private individuals, foreign countries with certain agendas. So even if you don't believe in their agenda, your room for maneuver is very limited. And I faced this and it's why I, I ended up quitting. Um, so I think what we should do is we should start, we have to see how to support the independent media outlets that are out there so... There are a few, and I think it's hopeful, uh, who are doing some meaningful work. It's just, they're struggling financially. They're not, they don't have a backup. Um, but other than that, uh, it's a grim situation. I think the media is part of the political establishment. They're all in part of one, uh, entity and they ride waves. Like we saw that during the October uprising, uh, how (laughs) some of them were now, you know, the voice of the revolution, whatever, look at them now, what are they doing? And I remember after uh, the Beirut blast, there was one channel that said, we are no longer hosting politicians. We're not going to give them a platform. Okay. That lasted. Um, so I'm not hopeful as long as there's not enough support. And I say this a lot and I said it in a, in a talk in London, I told like, uh, the Arab diaspora there who came and attended that we need to find ways to support these independent media outlets. Um, Their voice and their platform is important. When it comes to leaving, yeah, but let me tell you this, it's, I, I don't like to judge, you know, what people do, whether they leave or stay. It's not easy to leave. It's not easy to stay. But part of why we leave is because we're so drained. And we've reached a point in our career where we have priorities, especially if you have a family. Um, And I know Ziad, I know Ziad, for example, because you mentioned Ziad, Ziad left before. But Ziad is using, uh, you know, what he does best, giving interviews and analysis to still speak about a lot of important subjects. I try to do this through my journalism. I, I wrote a book, but yeah, I'm not, active per se I have to admit but I'll tell you what's the problem for example in France there's no Lebanese community it doesn't exist they're so divided it's uh, you don't know who to reach out to you don't know who's your circle you don't like I've recently after three years started meeting some people but I don't think we have powerful lobbies out there Abroad, this is the problem that we have and I'm talking about political lobbies like Lebanese coming together to lobby including for the Beirut uh, blast you know, a justice mechanism and I don't know where where to start I think there are a lot of egos unfortunately even when people leave I don't understand why Um, and I see this again and again and that's why people can't come together everyone wants to take credit everyone wants to lead everyone's blah 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 Uh, we just need better lobbies, and I'm, I, I'm a journalist. I, I don't think I, I want to do that. I'd be happy to help. I always say if you want help with communication or anything, I like to use my skills to help, but I'm not a politician. It's not my skill. Uh, but it's not very hopeful, I'll tell you, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, I would tell you, I attended a few protests in France on the explosion. There were like 20, 30 people. It's, I don't I don't get it everyone's life has been impacted by this, even if you were abroad, so I don't understand.
0: Maybe time for- Uh, There was
1: one more question, Donna.
0: Oh, yes, the little sister.
1: My sister-in-law.
0: Sister-in-law, sorry, sorry.
8: Hi, I'm Donna, I'm her (laughs) sister-in-law. This one is a more light question, but you took on writing a book uh, around a specific group of people. It's half the population, but it's still sp- specific because no one before in Lebanon specifically chose to write about women and their point of view in a war. Or it's always been this politician against that politician or this sect against this sect. While these women come from different backgrounds and from different religions, sure. they all are women and share the same collective trauma. trauma. Yeah.
1: yeah.
8: How did you build up to courage to... Start by like saying I'm gonna be the one who's gonna be the face of that, and I'm gonna be the one who's who will write and be worthy enough to take on such a heavy, I mean, thing from someone who's wanted to write her whole life but not, was never courageous to do so. But I mean, you do have to have some confidence and some like, yeah. believing that I will be the one to.
1: I mean, you said it. You have to believe in the project and the idea, and I think that. Um Really, it just came to me. I didn't go to... It's it's funny because I never wanted to write a book. It's just... uh, I left Lebanon. I covered the aftermath of the explosion. I was here. I've lived here most of my life. I've covered Lebanon for more than a decade. Um, And it all came together very naturally. And I just believed in the idea. And I said, you know, I'm going to venture into something that's maybe risky. But I could see why it was important because as you said really there are very few books in this region history books from the perspective of, of women and as raw as you know the way I portray it which is like a lot of uh, women narratives as, as is uh, being, being told and I got criticized by the way why are you telling this from the perspective of I women men suffer as well I was like what uh, there was literally a comment like that that I got on Instagram. And I'm like, dude, I know men suffer as well, but not as much as women. Like, uh, yeah. do I have to go through this? Uh, they have
8: libraries full of books about that. Yeah, and sometimes. then
1: history is always written by men. Wars, most of them, I'm not saying all of them, have been, you know, the conducted by men. Peace is conducted by men. We're part of this history and we're players in it, but we don't get to write it. So... And then, no, men don't suffer as much as women in Lebanon, and if you read the book, you will understand why. Uh, but it is what it is. like people pick on all kinds of, of things, and um, I think, you know, a women's perspective is is important, and it's very different from a man's perspective. And those who are mediators, and I have friends who are in mediation, they tell you. Women bring different things to the table when they're like negotiating. So,
0: yeah. William, did you have a question? No. Done. Same question. Wow, mind reader. Uh, Let me wrap it up. Done. Yeah. (laughs) I'll wrap it up. Uh, I experienced the same thing here. The 2023. So this is the third. Anniversary protest for the port blast. Not many people showed up compared to earlier years, but to me it makes sense. And the reason it makes sense, it goes back to a sentence in your book, which I think is true: Uh, the the problem is political. In Lebanon, protests don't deliver political change, and I think both are happening at the same time to vast degrees. The largest uprising in modern history. And then the most disappointing political outcome from it, an earlier try 18 years ago, those those demands were left unfulfilled. Um, and in the middle was a smaller attempt. It did not meet that much effect, uh, which means to me, politics is hijacked. And I think that is why we're always disappointed with turnouts shrinking and politics becoming more suffocating and perverted. But I'll echo what you said earlier, and the gentleman mentioned this. I think both are beneficial. You mentioned Ziad Majid. He's one of the first guests I interviewed on my podcast, and I went to Paris to meet him. I also went there to meet Nadim Hodi, former Human Rights Watch director, who was, I think he's still based there.
1: Yes, he is. He Arab had
0: Initiative. <clears throat> this guy, I partied with him in Hamra when I was younger. He's an activist, and he's also a delight. He's based in Paris. Ziad Mejid, to me, is one of the best. He chooses to be away. My first episode was with my favorite storyteller, Ziad Dweidi. Ziad Dweidi will not come back to this country anytime soon. But Ziad Mejid is doing his thing. Giselle Khoury did her thing here. And she left the foundation. It's going to keep running. Maybe she was working in Dubai the last few years, but she passed away here. So both are beneficial. I think, though, there's separate roles. There's the journalist, and that can extend to you. The author, who even though doesn't live here always, has this country in her heart. There's multiple narrators in this country still. There's some activism that remains. I think that's the only tool left. It's narrative. That's what this book delivers. It's not your story, it's Lebanon's story told through you. We're all doing this in different ways, watching Lebanon fade. I think that's the only tool left, its narrative and its expression, which is why I want to extend an applause to the owners of Adiaz, William, and Neve in the background for creating this space and letting us do this tonight. Let's give them a round of applause. They're on MTV podcast with me tomorrow. So I'm gonna be recording an episode largely about tonight at MTV. It'll come out next week. So you can get to know them both better next week.
1: And I want to thank them for reaching out to me. Uh Rafi did very early on, and they were really interested in, in the book. And thank you for having me and for being so keen on keeping this event today, despite what's uh what's happening. And I think we need more spaces like this for dialogue and so, I, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for endorsing my book.
0: <laughs> so full circle. I was called in at the last minute to do this episode. I'll disclose that. Yeah. I read as much as I could within a few days. Uh, it was difficult to read it, even had there been more time, because it's, it's a hard story to revisit. Which-
1: It takes me to the fact that I really want to thank you. And we only called you the last minute because I thought, you know, things were already planned and there was someone I didn't want to come and just present. And you were the only person I could think of.
0: (laughs) So as a man, I hope I stepped in for Um, women's shoes tonight.
1: No, you did. And I think it's important not to always have women. I've been on all women panels all the time. So and I think I don't know if Justin is here. Yeah, he's. He's hosting me in Paris. So there is another man who's going to question me on, on my book.
0: So. so let me wrap it up with a shout out to Justin Salhani. Check him out. Most, one of the most talented journalists I know. Who's currently with Al Jazeera. Wa'il Talib sitting in the back. One of the shyest guests I've had Can't in my see. podcast. He works at Lorient today. We have Jumana Haddad, a pioneer in her own right. We have Sara Yassin in this room. Dalal Ma'awad. William and Neve, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Roni. This Saturday's episode is cancelled. And Hamdun Sharl Hayek was the guest; he chose not to. I understand that. Uh, next week we have Mohammed Faour. He's a financial analyst and an AUB professor. And I hope this can keep going despite the climate. Thelel Mawad on Instagram, The Bay Report on Instagram. Thanks.